This is episode 316 of The Real Me and Colin, a movie podcast. On this week's episode, Chase and Joel will take a look at The Invisible Man, as well as go over the week in movie trailers, and Joel will have an extra review. All that and more, this episode starts right now. What's up, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of The Real Man Colon, a movie podcast. I am one of your co-hosts, Chase Lee. And if you decided to take a chance on us as your movie podcast choice, uh, and you've never listened to one before, and you decided to take a chance on us, we really do appreciate it, and we really hope you enjoy the conversation, especially if you're film buffs or if you're interested in film or if you want to hear two geeky people talk about films from their bedrooms. I think you chose the right spot. We have a good time here. And if you're a returning listener, Welcome back. We always appreciate you guys. You guys are the absolute best. As stated at the top, it is episode 316. We will be going over The Invisible Man, the 2020 kind of reimagining, reboot, remake, whatever Universal wants to call it. That is what we're going to be reviewing as our joint effort in this episode. And then, of course, I'll talk about some trailers that drop throughout throughout the week and then joel will have a uh extra review uh you know whenever he wants to reveal it but uh that will always be uh, a surprise that way you guys know um uh, what's going on throughout the episode and that is basically it for this episode it's a uh, pretty short sweet and to the point but um yeah before we get into the uh you know main review and all that stuff if you guys can please like this episode subscribe to the podcast feed wherever you're listening and let people know this is your favorite movie podcast to listen to. We would greatly appreciate it. And uh, as always, if you guys want to leave us a voice message, since we are hosted out of Anchor, um, you can do that. Link will be in the description below. If you want to donate to us, link in the description below. All that down below. So, Joseph, uh, how was your week? Uh, it is the last week in February. This is the weird uh, day. Uh, it's leap year. So we have that extra day in February. It already feels off. It feels weird, but uh, we are recording on this day, and I don't think we're going to get any chances to record on February 29th, but this is one of them. So uh, how was your week, sir, and uh, what's been going on over there? Yeah, I mean, I have to think that the last one was in 2016, and if it didn't fall on the weekend, you probably didn't record. Uh, And then it would have happened then before that. It would have happened before you started the show. So, yeah, I mean, this is kind of a rare rare thing um but yeah i want to i want to wish a happy fifth birthday to everybody born in on february 29th 2000 uh <laughs> i'm kidding but uh uh but yes uh good it's it's been it's been an interesting week uh finally found out that i am an official contributor as of the next review i post for spectrum culture uh found that out um last night and that was really exciting so i'll be writing pretty semi-regularly for them uh, actually, more than semi-regularly, pretty regularly. Um, and uh, so that's pretty exciting. And then, uh, let's see. Um, it's kind of been... Oh, I've been... Uh, we've been catching up with the last season of The Good Place uh, because it uh, leaves Hulu in like 10 days or something. And so we have three episodes left of that. We're watching those tonight, my parents and I. And uh, very excited for that. It's been a really good final season so far. And, um, you know, you know me guys, it takes me forever to get, to get around to, uh, to TV, (laughs) any sort of TV. And in fact, as proof of that, um, this past week I've been binge kind of my version of binge watching, which is every other night or so, um, uh, star Wars, the clone wars. And in case everybody was wondering, it's the, 
um, the 3D animated one, which is on Disney Plus right now. Uh, so I've been I'm in the middle of season two, and I'm trying to maybe catch up by the time this current season, which was a comeback, and is officially the final season ends, which I think is not for another like ten weeks maybe. So I think that I should I should be good. Usually there's fifteen episodes in a season of that. Um, I don't know if that rings true for this one, but you know me, I love my Star Wars content. This has been incredibly entertaining and. Uh, here it just gets better, so I'm I'm enjoying that. I'm probably going to do um, Star Wars Rebels after that, uh, which I had started when it when it started, but I lost track of it. So anyway, kind of nice that it's all in one place like this. Um, other than that, just kind of seeing movies. I saw The Lodge on Monday. That was a weird one. Um, I saw. I watched a screener for Spectrum Culture. I can't really talk about the movie, but it's called, uh, like, about my th- my feelings about the movie yet. Uh, but it's called Hope Gap. Um, stars Bill Nighy and Annette Bening. Uh, so that one's coming up. Watched that this week. Um, of course, saw The Invisible Man. I did, in va- I did, in fact, watch Guns Akimbo, which has been met with a bunch of controversy recently that I won't get into here, but... Um, uh, it was really bad. That's one of my reviews that I'll have coming this week. In fact, I think it's up now on my website. Um, I don't get in, I go. I don't get into any of the controversy surrounding it in my review. That's not the proper place. Uh, that would have to be like a separate editorial piece or something in my in my mind. Um, just because the director's online behavior this past couple weeks uh, has been it's been a pretty terrifying situation. Um, but um, anyway. Saw that, watched Disappearance at Clifton Hill, which is this weird kind of uh, Cronenbergian thriller, which is kind of uh, fitting because David Cronenberg co-stars in it. Um, Not very good, but still. Uh, Let's see, then saw Invisible Man. We'll get into that. What else did I watch? Um, Yeah, I think that's pretty much it in terms of things that I've been watching and my usual shows, good doctor, new Amsterdam, both going strong. Uh, lots of, lots of things happening on new Amsterdam in particular right now. So yeah, that's been, that's been my week. And then just, you know, working school, working, um, avoiding the, the coronavirus, uh, you know, hasn't made its way here yet, but, uh, yeah, that's, that's pretty much it. So Joel, I, I have a couple of questions for you. Okay. One, did did you actually see the Invisible? <laughs> so there you go. Uh, number one joke of the podcast. Uh, you cannot top it. I would uh, like to announce that Chase has been fired. Uh, he uh, is. No, he... you're going pro- to promote me for that uh, brilliant uh, <laughs> remark. So, uh, oh, and the second thing to go off of Joel's point with like the TV and stuff. I always told Joel uh, if we ever like get to a point where like he and I can just do this as our career. Uh, we would definitely be open to the possibility of like doing a TV podcast as mm. well, uh, since we would be able to cover a lot more, and that would be our life. But uh, we'll get to that point when we get to it. But um, yeah, it, it is true though. Joel has a hard time. I do. Uh, watching a lot I, I just but... I, I prioritize movies, and it just you know the other right. stuff that as much as I like it, like I I've only seen like three episodes of Watchmen, even though I love those or no two episodes, two episodes of Watchmen, even though I love those episodes. You know, I just, I just am kind of in my zone of, 
you know, reviewing movies for, for my readership and, and for myself, <laughs> obviously part, part of it is for myself. And I just, you know, the others, as, as good as a lot of TV is, I'm more comfortable watching something with my parents uh, or, and they're not, they're never going to watch Watchmen or, or anything like that. So I just kind of let it go by the wayside and I just, I just do my own thing. And that's but see, this is where, this is where you're better than me. Cause I don't watch as many movies as you do. I literally <laughs> will prep for the show. And then if I get screeners, that's cool. But like, I don't, I can't seek out everything guys. Like, I just don't have the, the time in my day to do that. But uh, for this week, um, I watched the disappearance at Clifton Hill, uh, just like Joel did. Uh, I was just okay with it. Yeah. Uh, Mark, Mark was it gets, more of a, yeah, Mark was more of a fan. It was pretty, it gets, it gets pretty tired after yeah, a while. It's, it's, it's just uh, like, it, it, it shows promise, but like it just, it just, was it, it, down the it, it eventually just becomes about trying to solve the mystery and, and all the characters are just pawns in that. And it right. just, it, it just, you know, Good performances. I, I actually think that David Cronenberg, weirdly enough, gave the best performance, maybe, because uh, he's he, actually he does, pretty he good. Have, uh, he does have one of my favorite lines of the year so far. I have a podcast. Uh, yes. Like, just, <laughs> exactly. just, just the way he says it with his voice, I'm like, that's if I if I ever ran across like David uh, Cronenberg like in person, I feel like he would be like that guy. Would be like, I gotta run. I have a podcast. <laughs> like that sounds like something he would say. So. I've seen I, I interviews with him. He he seems pretty chill, and I've heard I've yeah. heard that he's pretty chill in person. So well, I'm, it was really wouldn't be surprised. Uh, you know, uh, my fiance she watches everything with me, and so I pointed to him and I was like, "That's one of my favorite directors ever." And she was like, "Like, what has he done?" And I of course I list stuff off, and she was like, "I've never heard of those things." I was like, "Yeah, he's a very like underground like genre director, <laughs> but like it's just weird to see him like act in a movie." But yeah, I saw that. Um, and then for next week, uh, I have like four of them. <laughs> I think like ready to go. Like I have greed. Um, the uh, what is that? It's it was like a documentary. The Times of Bill Cunningham. Oh yeah, I have. Uh, I saw that Extra, too. Yeah, extraordinary. Uh, I got listed, and if another one comes my way from Apple TV or yeah, Apple Plus or TV or whatever it's called, um, the banker one. So next week is just stacked with like, like extra reviews all over the and, place. And of course onward, but, and uh, didn't you see, maybe you missed it. I don't know. Didn't you see first cow? Uh, no. So I, I just, oh, you didn't that. Oh, uh, we had, okay. we had other things going on that night, but, uh, gotcha. Uh, but I'm sure there'll be plenty of opportunities. It's a 24. So, right. But yeah, just a lot of uh, smaller stuff. I saw swallow, uh, that will be the second week in March. And, I think there's uh, – I got Bloodshot lined up. Uh, so it's like March is going to be a pretty busy month, guys. Mm. But, uh, yeah, that's all That's all I watched this week. Uh, we finished the see, season finale of Love is Blind. It is the trashiest thing I've ever seen, but I enjoyed every single second of it. Uh, so if you love trash reality TV, check it out. It's on Netflix. And then, of course, I uh, saw Invisible Man, which was really great. And this will be a great segue into the review. Saw with a crowded – uh, theater, and I'm glad that this movie is getting the great response it's getting because uh, it looks like the numbers are tracking very, very well. Uh, and I'm really glad that Lee Winnell is finally getting something to push him even further. Uh, I said this ever since I saw uh, Saw when I was, um, what was it, 13 years old. I said, Oh, him and James Wan are going to go places. And obviously, James Wan is accelerating faster than Lee Winnell. Lee Winnell has had a very steady career. 
but I'm glad to know that this one is going to like push him out there even further. And Joel, I think that is a great segue to talk about the Invisible Man. Yeah, I mean, it's it's been really interesting to see his progression as a as a filmmaker slash screenwriter, whatever you want to say. I guess filmmaker is kind of an all in one uh, <laughs> descriptor, but. Yeah, I mean, this is The Invisible Man. It's the new movie from director Lee Whannell, who saw his um, um, directorial debut with Insidious Chapter 3, which might, I guess, be the best one. I'm not a huge fan of those movies. Um, not a huge fan, but but that is probably the best one. And then he made Upgrade, which is really fun. You know, we talked about that on the show. And now he comes with this movie, which is a departure from everything you might think it is. Um, so it, it, it does share the name of the 1897 novel by H.G. Wells in the 1933 film uh, directed by James Whale. Uh, but it isn't really like those. And in fact, to the degree that neither of those things is credited at the end as being anything of a... Um, of an inspiration for one L who gets a sole uh, screen story and, and screenplay uh, credit, I think is, is what is what happens up there. And, and of course directing um, because the originals were very much in line or the original movie, at least was very much in line with the kind of monster movie that was coming out at that time. You think of Dracula, you think of Frankenstein, uh, Bride of Frankenstein, and those movies were very much uh, about what was truly terrifying to audiences of the day, which is uh, an unknown creature of unknown origin, a mysterious being. Uh, that was what was terrifying. And as quaint as we find them now, as quaint as maybe even some people found them then, it was it was pretty common to, to be uh, regaled by stories of people screaming in the theater. Uh, when seeing that, I mean, uh, relative to now, of course, the makeup and prosthetics are are pretty old school. But but then, I mean, they didn't, you know, the technology was only up to that. So, of course, that's going to be more more terrifying. And it's really interesting to see how One L basically takes that structure uh, and applies it to what is scary now. To, to audiences and to a specific part of the audience, those who have um, survived abusive relationships, because that is ultimately what this movie is about, um, but otherwise keeps the structure. So you have the initial fright of the protagonist by the menace, and you have the menace becoming more direct in its approach, and then you have the final confrontation. And that's, that's what this movie does. Um, but thankfully what one L does also is he modernizes the thematic center of the movie. It isn't just a, a being of unknown origin. It is a terror that one woman cannot see that had already been terrorizing her. The story here follows Cecilia played by Elizabeth Moss, uh, who is a woman at the beginning of the film who is trying to exit the relationship with her, I think, is he her husband, I think, husband or boyfriend or some sort of partner um, named Adrian, played by Oliver Jackson Cohen, uh, who is clearly abusive because, as we see, she gets up in the middle of the night, she gathers all of her things, 
she tries to basically tries to find the exit in the dark of this house that's extremely postmodern architecture uh and uh, it's like a maze it's it's literally you have to like do a bunch of left and right turns to get anywhere in this place so very maze-like structure and she she escapes she meets her sister emily played by harriet dyer and uh and just as she's reached that sanctuary and is in the car adrian rushes it breaks a window and receives an injury that he barely seems to notice so right off the bat a lot of things are communicated to us. This relationship is toxic. Uh, Cecilia needs to um, uh, escape it very, very quickly. And also, literally, Adrian is a monster. That is what he is. And that is the definition of monster, according to this modern-day reimagining of the monster movie. Um, so, as the movie moves forward, uh, we learn that Adrian has apparently committed suicide... And uh, Cecilia doesn't believe it. She is of the opinion that he was too in control of everything, including her and including every bit of his life, that suicide would have been too easy an out for him. And she is not convinced. And in fact, soon strange things start to occur. She starts to witness or feel a presence in empty rooms, uh, see a presence in empty chairs, see footprints on a bedsheet, see... Uh, the, the, the revelation of a figure when paint is dumped. All this stuff happens and nobody believes her um, because she cannot escape this menace, this person that has terrified her for her entire life that is so controlling and so uh, just truly kind of an overlord that she is unable to escape him. And that includes one gigantic elaborate bit of gaslighting on his... Uh, part um and yeah so that is this movie it is a modern day monster movie in every sense of the term it is relevant and it is terrifying um i did not expect this movie to be as good as it is like i walked in was like okay yeah blumhouse uh i know that you know chase is super thrilled that's uh, jason's blum is as he puts it regularly his boy uh, <laughs> and I knew that we were both excited for this, but I think that, I don't know if you felt this way, Chase, but I think that I was absolutely just completely shocked and, and surprised in a good way that this movie works as well as it does. Um, especially for one L because, you know, as people know, I, the series that he's been a part of in some way have been ones that, I wasn't super impressed by. Uh, he certainly has had his name attached to certain movies that I like, but this is the strongest I've felt about any of his movies um, in any, in pretty much any way. I, I, I liked Upgrade, like I said. You know, I gave up on the Saw franchise after three movies and after he, I think, had left the series. Um, and, you know, like the, the, the Insidious movies are fine. I, I don't, I'm not like a huge fan of them. Uh, I think that they're fine, but uh, maybe the second one and the last key are a little less than fine, but, uh, but still this movie is truly terrifying. And I think that part of it is a response to the cinematography, which is paranoid. It's beautiful to look at, but it is paranoid. Uh, often we will have shots that, ex that 
start as ones that we think are just neutral shots, establishing shots that are then revealed to be subjective. We also have certain framing uh, choices made by one L and his cinematographer. I've forgotten his cinematographer's name. Um, maybe Sergio Ducio. I think that might, that might be his name or, or Cusio um, who will commonly frame shots to make us believe that Adrian, the invisible Adrian, is in the shot. So it'll be a character is way off to one side of the shot, and we have a bunch of seemingly empty negative space in the foreground that we think, okay, well, that's supposed to be Adrian. We never know, of course, because we, like Cecilia, cannot see Adrian, uh, and thus the paranoia, paranoia begins. Um, but you also have just the editing of certain sequences, like any of the fights that break out between Cecilia and this invisible menace, uh, where you think about like a, a restaurant scene where a knife suddenly appears where it's not supposed to be, or a scene in the kitchen where uh, a knife disappears suddenly, and then a fire starts on the griddle uh, where she's making breakfast. Um, and it's all done in one, like, wide shot, kind of. Uh, I guess that would be a wide shot or a medium shot at best. And you just have these, these, uh, these incredible fight sequences that are brought to life with really convincing visual effects. Without, re without revealing anything, I will just say that the Invisible Menace does kind of begin to lose itself. Um, and that's all I'll say. And the visual effects used to bring that across are also absolutely striking um, in how well they are incorporated into the, into the screen uh, as, a, as an effect and also as something interacting with everyone else on screen. It is uh, really impressive and, um, and kind of jarring, to be, to be completely honest, and terrifying. It really works to enhance the terror that Cecilia feels. Um, Moss's performance is, I think, one of her best. I, I still believe that her best work was done in Queen of Earth, uh, Alex Ross Perry's just insane thriller, um, very much a chamber drama too, set on an island, her and Catherine Waterston, Waterston who uh, are sisters and, uh, or, or are, they, are they sisters? Yeah, they're sisters and, um, eventually Moss's character kind of goes insane. There's a great monologue. I, it's just the, the work of a great actor. And I think it's the thing that I keep coming back to in my head. Now, this one could overtake it with a lot of thought, and there is going to be a lot of thought around this movie. I haven't even finished my review yet. Uh, it is forthcoming because I want to be careful uh, to cover everything that I want to. Um, and after having seen it once, I just I couldn't do that. So... I, it is forthcoming still. Um, anyway, whatever the case, this is one of Moss's best performances. Um, there isn't just a crazy woman here. Um, and, and thankfully, Moss doesn't simply play it as, as insane. I actually was talking to somebody over Messenger on Facebook last night about this movie. He had just seen it, and I was like, Man, let's, you know, I got to talk about this movie. So 
we've been talking and I kind of described it as uh, the character was frantic but lucid. You never get as an audience, uh, of course you're constantly in her perspective, so you wouldn't, but still through her performance, you never get the feeling that she is pure insane. She, you, you never get the feeling that there is madness here. You get the feeling that this is a lucid person who is being terrorized and cannot understand how to deal with it. And that is key because I think that Moss plays it so perfectly uh, in every note. It's a performance of an actress or uh, of a character basically built by trauma that is incredibly nuanced and is just truly, truly impressive uh, stuff that just claws on your insides. I know there are going to be people who compare this performance to that of Tony Collette in Hereditary, Lupita Nyong'o and Us, uh, you know, Florence Pugh in Midsommar. Certainly there's connective tissue there. This is a big horror movie that's going to cause a stir and, you know, like those. I will say, though, Chase, that I think that a performance that came to mind for me as I was watching it, even more so than these other ones, was a- Ashling Franciosi in The Nightingale. Uh, somebody whose life has been uh, torn through with abuse, um, long-standing and immediate. I mean, in that movie, it was somebody who was a prisoner, um, who wasn't, uh, you know, it was like a, uh, an indentured servant, essentially, as prisoner. And, uh, and then the horrible things happened to her. So, of course, a horrible thing happens to her at the you know, uh, kind of later into a really terrible life. And that's the same thing here. She's being terrorized by somebody in a very different way than the way that she was already being terrorized by that somebody. And I just thought that Moss was fantastic. This is another case of a performance that's in a big horror movie that's in the first half of the year, Uh, you know, accepting Midsommar, which just barely made the cut. I guess it's at the halfway point of 2019. Uh, where people were wanting it to be recognized at the Oscars. That's you know already a conversation with this one, and it definitely deserves to be. Um, but luckily, it isn't just a case of a really striking performance in the middle of something that's familiar but scary. This movie is really unpredictable. It reminded me of early M. Night Shyamalan in that way. There's a gigantic twist uh, that I did not see coming, and that is truly jarring in the great traditional way of twists uh, and very much in the way that I think if M. Night Shyamalan sees this movie, he's just gonna, he's just gonna sit there afterward. And then it's just, he's just gonna, he's just gonna crap his pants. That, this, uh, yeah, he's going to love this. I think that Hitchcock and, and I, you know, John Carpenter is still alive. I wonder if he's seen this. I think he would love it. I think Hitchcock would love it. It's very much in the tradition of something that is, um, Intense at its best, but also builds that at its best, too. And really, this movie is only at its best every time. Um, you know, are there small logical things that are that are kind of flubs? Sure. But I don't even care. Should there be maybe, you know, if, if they're using a bunch of uh, security cameras, should there be a lot of stuff that's explained by that? Sure. Whatever. I don't even care. This movie is excellent. And... Uh, I, I just, I, I was absolutely just blown away, blown out of the water. I wasn't, I wasn't anticipating something this good. I was anticipating a good movie. It did look like a good movie. Uh, I don't think that I was expecting anything this 
complex, this, um, I don't know, just, just incredibly meticulous in its design and it's, and in its execution. I love the invisible man. It's, it's going to be a favorite of mine, I think for, for most of the rest of the year. I mean, it's only February, so, uh, or essentially March, it's only March, uh, by the time most people are hearing this and, uh, yeah, but I think it's going to stay there for a while. I mean, you know, um, Us came out in March. It made my top 10 as of when we recorded that top 10, you know. And this happens sometimes. Just you know, movies that really strike you early in the year. It happened for a lot of people with Get Out back in 2017. Uh, big, another major horror movie. That uh, just something really grabs you early in the year doesn't let you go and really just burrows itself in your mind. And I just, I just think it is superb. I'm giving the invisible man an A yes. an A is great. So, um, that is my review. I'm not going to give it an A plus. I'm like chasing that way really has to, you know, <laughs> really has to just barrel through me. I, I you know, I, I can see maybe this falling to the bottom half of a, of a top 10, uh, you know, at the, by the end of the year. Um, but it's going to be there for a while, I think too. So it's, uh, it is fantastic. So that's my review. Uh, Chase, are you in the same boat as me? Were you surprised how good this was? Well, uh, I was not surprised on how good it was because I knew it was going to be good. Uh, I've always been a fan of how Lee really, he's really kind of inventive in this genre and really kind of stands out amongst the rest he doesn't create anything that's you know average like even with the saw films and insidious and even stuff like dead silence or uh, death sentence the guy knows how to make really great horror pictures genre pictures and they just they stand out and they are slightly campy gory you know sometimes really uh aggressive with its intensity like there's just something about him that i can't explain to where if he ever puts his name on a film whether it be just as a screenwriter or even um, as a director, he stands out. And, you know, he's really great at, like, horror comedies with, like, cooties and stuff. Like, the guy is just kind of versatile, and that's what I really like about him. But The Invisible Man is really great in the regards to, like, it's kind of capturing everything that he's done before in his career while also making the most mature thing he's ever done. And that's uh, kind of a test of testament to kind of him just growing up and you know getting older and uh, really kind of finding his footing in this industry and doing really great things and you know just seeing this one I can't wait to see where he goes from here like it's it's almost like he's kind of topped out in his career so far but his career is about to take off even more so it's going to be fascinating to see what he does but I think this is a great start to what Universal should have done in the first place in terms of recapturing um, the magic of like Universal monster movies, but applying it into a modern setting. And I, while Joel was talking, I was looking over the budgets and just the uh, everything about what they've done in terms of like modern takes. You know, they had like uh, the Wolfman from 2010, they had the Mummy in 2017. And both of those movies cost over $100 million. And people, uh, I, I, I didn't mind The Wolfman, uh, but I didn't really care for The Mummy at all. 
but the Invisible Man will teach everyone out there that you can make an effective horror film for $7 million. And it's kind of <laughs> impressive that they were able to do it on that budget and uh, reinvent this thing and give it new life, uh, ironically. So um, so with Lee Whitnell, let's go ahead and start with him because he is, him and Elizabeth Moss are the, the heroes of this movie. And so rightfully so, we got to dissect everything they, they do because they make this movie possible. To start with the script, what I like about Lee's approach to this, as Joel kind of put it, is he's balancing many different genres and themes and styles all into one, and somehow it works. Like, if you were to look at this in each individual component, it kind of baffles the mind that he was able to weave in and out of it so uh, effortlessly, and it, it... all comes together towards the end. And when the credits start rolling, you're like, wow, that was a great experience to start with the, the central theme and the core of this film is the, the abuse and the psychological, emotional and physical abuse one might endure in a relationship and how even after death, they can still traumatize the abusee in this situation to a point where she can't even get out of the house. Like she can't even go get the mail without being terrorized. Um, just by the uh, uh, you know stain that this person left in her life, it has affected her even after he commits suicide. And like that's really important in this story. That's the powerful uh, themes that Lee is kind of you know coming across. You know that's what makes this that's what makes this film so modern and so terrifying is because we live in a day and age where people will air their dirty laundry on social media. And we hear a lot of cases about abuse or sexual harassment, rape, or all these terrible things that people go through. And people can talk about it in real time. And it's more of a, a uh, eye-opening thing now for everyone, now that everyone can uh, kind of display that on social media. And so taking something that is kind of timely and modern and applying it to this, it does make it more terrifying because – there are people out there that go through this situation. And just from the opening scene, the Adrian doesn't even have to say anything. And we get all of that all within this opening sequence that this guy is super toxic for her. She needs to go. And within the first 10 minutes, he already commits suicide. He's gone. But you can still see the impression that he leaves on her and what she's got to go through. Like She's not sleeping well. She's you know becoming... Uh, paranoid about everywhere she goes like it is really striking stuff just within the first 10 minutes but like that is the power that abusers have on their victims is that even if they live far away or whatever they still control their lives in some way shape or form and just having that at the core of your movie which as an umbrella this is an entertaining horror film that I think anyone can enjoy but at the core of it is something uh, really just overwhelming emotionally and really kind of uh, just strikes you. And you can get behind these uh, these characters in a way to – it almost makes them feel like an underdog story where mm-hmm. it's like you want her to overcome this fear and this terror and live a happier and healthier life. And so it kind of works in an underdog story in that regard. 
Speaking um, of speaking of dogs, hello dog. <laughs> right. Uh, uh, I don't know what she's barking at, but um, yeah. But by the way, by the way, I mean it's been brought up, and I and I should have mentioned it. This is kind of the first big major studio wide released horror film of the Me Too era, mm-hmm. and you know there have been others, but they've been, they've been a little bit smaller as as everybody tries to reckon with all of that, and this is. You know, not in any sort of hectoring, you know, like uh, condescending way, a movie of this era that we are in by using this story of the past. And I just, yeah, I love that. Anyway, go ahead. Sorry. I just, as you were talking, I was like, oh, yeah, I forgot to mention the Me Too connection. (laughs) Kind of. Right. Because it's very much that. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's a really, like I said, striking film in terms of of that. Because when people go see this movie, they expect, like, you know, jump scare after jump scare. Like, they expect, like, uh, you know, Annabelle uh, comes home again. And it's like, no, this is something completely different. And this is why I love horror films. This is exactly why Hereditary was my favorite film of that year because it deals with actual human emotions mm. and human tragedy and human experiences. And it's, it's uh, in the center of this like chocolate, you know, horror entertaining coding that anyone um, um, can watch and anyone yeah. can understand, it's, but it's, it's so satisfying is that, I mean, you, you, right. s- you talk about how, you know, there are not easy jump scares here, but there are jump scares. The the knife reveal that I was talking about in the in the restaurant, I mean, is kind of two in one, almost. My entire theater gasped. Uh, there's there's a scene in a restaurant. There's a knife where it shouldn't be, and then there's a payoff, and it, it is absolutely terrifying. And it's a great jump scare, but it's also not a cheap one. No, it's, it's not cheap. Yeah, that, that's why that's why I love this movie because everything is earned. Nothing yeah. is ever given out as like this cheap you know, scare tactic or jump scare, like everything is effective. It's bare bones storytelling, Mm -hmm. but that's what makes the horror so effective. And, you know, you know, I spoke uh, with like the drama elements and like the, the human connection that we, we feel for this character, but this movie also works as a thriller, a suspenseful film, a horror film, a science fiction film. Like he's able Mm -hmm. to weave in and out of all these different genres. And it just, it just works with the horror element you're dealing with someone that is stalking her and you get the sense of dread and just this uh, emotional intensity throughout the entire film. You deal with science fiction stuff with uh, supposed, you know, technology that uh, might come into the story, uh, it, you know, later on. I'm not going to reveal too much because I would go into spoiler territory, but it's stuff that I can actually see happen in terms of how we are with technology and how we can get to that point and, giving people that power to abuse that technology for their own personal gain and, um, you know, sociopathic tendencies is also terrifying. So, um, yeah. Uh, so he's able to kind of weave this story with all these different, uh, kind of genres like that. And it's really just a testament to how, uh, how he writes and he's always been this good. And I'm so glad that people are, are recognizing that, um, uh, to go to his directing style, to kind of go off of what springboard off of what Joel was talking about, he utilizes uh, space and mm. how he uh, uh, gets the authentic scares out of us. Like for instance, there's a lot of shots of nothing, a lot of wide shots, a lot of slow pans, a lot of you know depth of field shots, a lot of wide shots, and they have nothing in it. And that is where the beauty comes from. 
is that we have to suspend our disbelief and knowing that there is nothing there, but we know something is there because of how Moss reacts to these particular shots. And there is not a lot of, uh, you know, fast cuts, not a lot of fast editing. This is a slow burn film to really let you soak in what you're not seeing, but you know something is there. Like there's some shots where, uh, like Joel alluded to, the wide kitchen shot. There's some hallway shots. We don't know where Adrian is standing. He could be standing in the corner. He could be staring right in front of us. We don't know. And that's that's where the kind of mind games and the trickery comes in uh, with his directing style and his vision is that when he puts a shot in front of us, we have no idea where Adrian is at. And that is where the the games kind of come in and that's where the the mind starts playing with us and we're just like i don't know where he is and you're kind of following your eye with nothing but you know something is there um so yeah i think uh utilizing this kind of uh someone brought up a great a great comparison um online i don't know if it was imdb or what but it kind of reminded me of like the paranormal activity movies just with a higher budget and a cleaner look that's basically what this movie is, and I, I kind of enjoy that um, and how they uh, approach that. Like, watch the Paranormal Activity movies and how they kind of reveal certain scares and tactics. And th- this movie takes that approach, but it definitely has a higher budget and a clean yeah, look, like I said. Th- those, those are movies that really kind of uh, almost take advantage of the audience's paranoia right. <laughs> in a very similar way because it's a lot of shots of nothing. And that's actually something that was – you know, in certain circles of, I don't know, people being edgy or something was something that those movies were um, targeted for, you know, in terms of some audience's ire because they didn't like that. Right. Uh, They didn't like the fact that it was a bunch of shots of nothing because they felt that that meant nothing was happening. Yeah. There's a similar energy going on here. And and that's the magic of these movies is that if you believe, get into the story, get into the characters, get into the vibe of what they're going for it really makes for a great horrific experience. And that's exactly what, what Lee was trying to go for. And I think he mm-hmm. uh, uh, exceeds that tremendously just from the way he writes his story and the way he directs his thing. Now to jump into the performances, because I do think this is a two, uh, a two person operation. So Lee Winnell sets the groundwork. He sets, you know, the stage for how he wants this movie to look, how it wants how he wants it to feel, how he wants it to flow. It's all about the timing of the editing. It's all about the timing of the shots, how he frames these things up. But the thing that is supposed to make that engine work is the gas, the oil, whatever you want to call Moss's performance to run. And mm-hmm. I, I've said this um, ever since I started noticing her, but if you really watch stuff like The Handmaid's Tale, you can definitely see what I'm talking about. But Elizabeth Moss is one of the greatest reactionary performers out there. And what I mean by that is when you're an actor and you're performing in a scene, acting is all about reacting. But a lot of actors, they can do that. Like they can, you know, uh, pitch a piece of dialogue back and forth and they can react to what's happening in the scene and they can do their jobs. But there's something about Moss and the way she reacts to stuff that she goes like 1,000% all the time, whether it be this or Queen of Earth or uh, her smell or 
you know, uh, Handmaid's Tale, whatever. She's really great at reacting. Like you can see her eyes get super red and she can tear up uh, uh, at the drop of a hat. She can mm. quiver her lips. She can look the most like terrified uh, in any scene. Like just, I'm telling you, watch The Handmaid's Tale. Most of those shots are compromised of close-ups. And so we see her face there. I'm able to kind of analyze how she um, reacts to stuff. That's why I, I call her one of the best reactionary uh, performers out there. And when you're dealing with a movie that is supposed to be about nothing and there's supposed to be this entity following you around, you need a great reactionary performer to do that. And that's why she was hired for this. And that's why she's perfect in this role because of how she reacts to stuff. And uh, case in point, there's one scene in the movie. This isn't spoiling anything because obviously there's an invisible entity following her around, but she's in the room um, with a bunch of coffee grounds on the floor uh, to see where he's going to step. And we know that he's just standing in the doorway and, and she knows that too. Uh, and he's not moving. And so it cuts back and forth between her and him. And obviously nothing is happening. It cuts uh, back and forth between a shot of the doorway and her. Just watch her face and watch how uh, mortified she is knowing that there is an abuser. There is uh, this ghost, this spirit, whatever 10 feet in front of her and she's got a knife in her hand and she's got all this um, kind of anxiety built up in her and just watch her face and you will, you will feel for her. You will, you will know everything in that scene and she's acting against nothing. That's why she is uh, really great at what she does. And she sells this entire performance. And I agree with Joel uh, in terms of she's not just crazy for the sake of being crazy. Like mm. we know that she is seeing something abnormal and she's trying to get people's attention, but people are not believing, believing her for obvious reasons. She's very well aware of what's going on. Like she's not just psychotic. Like she is lucid. She knows what's going on. Uh, and that's why it's so frustrating. Cause we want, we want her to be, you know, clearing her name of innocence, but like people are just not going for it, obviously due to circumstances, but um, yeah, she completely sells that thing and you just, you absolutely feel for her every uh, inch of the way and it's just a really great performance. All the supporting cast is great too. Um, you know, I cannot believe, uh, and Joel knows where I'm going with this, I cannot believe after, <laughs> I knew it, yeah, I knew it. <laughs> I, I cannot believe, because I said this when I reviewed the movie, I said oh my god, why is uh, Aldous Hodge in What Men Want? This movie is a stain on his career. And I don't know what happened, but ever since that movie, that guy's been turning around some really fantastic performances, and he he has completely forgot that movie in his resume, which he should. But um, he needs to do yeah. We film. we should say he plays a policeman, uh, single father to Storm Reed, uh, yes. who's from a, a Wrinkle in Time and Don't Euphoria. Let Don't Let Go. Yeah. Um. Who? Yeah. Basically, he's just a friend, a very very good friend, uh, and Hodges is he's, warm he's, he's compassionate charismatic yeah. like that's mm -hmm. the that's the magic of what this guy does like i love uh whenever he pops up in movies now you know joel and i saw him in brian banks and he was really great in that i heard he was great in clemency like this guy is just turning around his career after one uh failed mishap uh you know very early on um in his career where he finally exploded onto audiences but yeah, he, he's really great in this role. Uh, they have a, a, a nice 
chemistry where it's very kind of like loose, very believable that these people would be friends. Like they just have this uh, kind of improv style to all their scenes to where like it doesn't even feel like it's real dialogue from a script. It just feels like they're two friends uh, interacting, but that's what makes I, their relationship. You are uh, so right. I, yeah. I think about uh, a very long exchange about a ladder. Yeah. Uh, where somebody, where one of the characters has given another character a ladder as a present, and the the exchange is not only with between Moss and Hodge, but also Reed, who's a complete natural, and we knew that ever since A Wrinkle in Time. Um, it, you know, it's just yeah, it, it's if like you, you say, it's just like it's yeah. just it's just kind of I don't want to say the word lazy and mean a bad in, in a bad way, but it's just kind of very um, uh, laid back. That's what I mean. It's very laid back chemistry between actors who are on each other's level in that scene, uh, maybe kind of, you know, imp- improvising some of the dialogue or at least, you know, the ways that they're the way that they're saying the dialogue. Uh, they're they're maybe saying it in a way that the screenplay doesn't doesn't, uh, um, you know, specify in any particular way. And it's you, great. You those, it's a great you scene. You those type of scenes because this mm-hmm. whole movie is weighted down with emotional dread. And Aldous Hodge and Storm Reed, they're the, they're the, like, light in this they're movie. The, they're, the, they're the stabilizing calm in right. this movie. And, which is otherwise pretty destabilizing, uh, <laughs> and, yeah. uh, to say the least. And, uh, and Harriet Dyer also gives, is, is quite good as the sister. Yeah, she's um, very brief, but uh, I, yeah. yeah, she was really great. And, you know, even going uh, as far as to say, uh, uh, hold on, I got the I do be up, so let me go ahead and attempt it. Uh, Oliver Jackson Cohen, even him as Adrian, mm-hmm. barely has any dialogue, but makes a presence. Uh, yeah, exactly. Makes yeah. a presence. Like everyone makes a presence, even down to uh, the uh, uh, the lawyer, the money lawyer. I'll just say that so I won't spoil like who he is or whatever. <laughs> well, yeah, My, Michael Michael Dorman is the actor. Uh, yeah. Is, yeah. Who's very good here too? Yeah, yeah. Um, it, once again, makes a presence, and they don't have mm-hmm. to because this is Elizabeth Moss's movie essentially. Because she's in every single waking moment in this movie, but everyone else makes uh, an impression. And once again, you have to sell the fact that nothing is there. There is a uh, once the third act gets crazy as hell, uh, everyone has to act like there's something there and like possibly hitting them or whatever. It's it's really great work. Like once again, you have to get people that are great at reactionary stuff. So yeah, very, very uh, good props on the uh, acting guys. I don't know what else more to say. Um, it's uh, like I said, uh, I mentioned earlier, it's shot. Well, it's edited well. It's, you know, it, it's right. The, at, the sound, the-, the sound work is also fantastic. And it's, and it's so important because he uses silence a lot. Yeah. He dips, um, out, he dips out of the sound quite, quite often. And that, um, or I'll, or I'll say this. I'll, I'll put it this way. He utilizes silence maybe in unexpected places that we don't anticipate. Uh, and did, and a lot of it the, is... The music, too. The right, music yeah. unexpectedly uh, kind of... Uh, yeah, it's not, it's not driving the scares. Uh, no. it, so there's no, like, sting at, at when a scare happens, it, which I think has happened so often in the horror genre that we find that a comfort. But he's not, he's, he's not here to comfort us. No. And so... Now, you know, but then he'll also use sound in unexpected places. So like the opening scene, we would think this escape is going to be quiet, but actually it's, it's kind of led by the sound of the crashing of the waves outside, which is incredibly loud. And, and it's kind of the point is that their bedroom, the place that she initially has to, you know, escape, 
which is from literally under his arm. While that's occurring, the, the waves are crashing right outside on the cliffs because their their bedroom overlooks the cliffs. And so you hear all of that. And then you hear, you know, obviously she's also trying to be quiet, but causes, you know, some noise and they amplify the noise of a dog, a dog food bowl, uh, you know, being kicked across the floor or a car alarm going off or just her running on the grass, um, maybe, you know, in fear of her feet being too loud on the grass outside, you know, just all of that. And it's, and it's excellent. It's great work. You know, the Academy is, um, they are combining the sound qualities, the sound qualities, sound categories, <laughs> can't speak, uh, the sound categories this next year. And, uh, you know, this would be a good, a kind of a good first because the overall sound is amazing, whether it be the mixing or the editing or what have you, it's the whole thing. The, and the, the, the effects and the, the audio mixing, they have mm-hmm. to elevate what Lee captured on on camera, and if you mm-hmm. don't do that, it doesn't work. And so, yeah. you when you have this kind of glorious like sound design of a mixture of environment and people rather than loud noises or stings, like you said, it is more terrifying. You we, can we you can almost imagine Lee Wanell sitting in the obviously the strategy session when there's when there's sound work being developed in the opening scene and they are, you know, he's been, he's kind of told them, uh, you know, you got to incorporate the, the sound of the waves and then they've done it. And then you can just imagine him just repeatedly having to tell them maybe guys, just keep turning the volume up, uh, right. <laughs> you know, and then they're doing it, they're doing it. And then he's just like, you know, guys, literally just go to the top of the volume ceiling with this because we need it to be, we need it to be overwhelmingly loud. We need it to, to muffle the sounds of anything else she's doing. That's how, that's how loud it needs to be. And I just, I love careful, it, cautious yes. work like that. It's so. the, it's the subtlety in the design of that and the effects that they, they're not loud in, in your face. They're just, they're these subtle hints and changes that elevate throughout the entire movie and get progressively like louder mm-hmm. or, you know, uh, more in tandem to the scene. And like, it's that, that's how, He's able to get the the thrills out of you. And, you know, speaking upon the effects, once again, this movie's $7 million. And mm-hmm. I I have a feeling that maybe Elizabeth Moss was probably a mil out of that. And all the other actors probably equaled 500000 or a mil as well. So now we're dealing with like five hundred or not five hundred, but $5 million And now everyone's salaries. I will guarantee you that their effects budget was maybe, maybe one or two, one one point five. It wasn't that much, but what's so great about it is it utilizes practical effects and uh, CGI. Mm-hmm. Uh, the computer generated effects, like Joel said, with maybe some of the um, some of the later parts of the movie. We'll so, just say, yeah, some of the later parts <laughs> of the movie. It was it was amazing how they blended that in with the real life settings. And I mm. once again, it blows my mind that this movie was made on the cheap. But that's. What I mean, hey, it's Blum, it's Blumhouse in his secret like right, right, tax, uh, his secret tax break version of <laughs> of funding a movie that he explained on a on a Hollywood Reporter roundtable that I completely forgot the the details because I don't understand right. these things. But it's so it's some it's something called like I think it's like Plan B or something like that, where instead of all instead of the 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 plan this this Plan A or stage a or something a or and b i know the a and b and c are involved 
and C is kind of the lowest, the ones that all these VOD movies are made are made with um, to avoid a lot of uh, a lot of salary, uh, a lot of salary pay. And um, yeah, I mean, it's just this this secret thing that he does that is able that he's able to make such, you know, make a movie for so little that's so impressive and get good work out of people who are working under, you know, uh, uh, these specific, very specific um, pay situations, not unfair pay situations. Certainly not. I'm not trying to say that just limited pay. Um, And yeah, it's it's incredible. Right. It also depends on the person because Mm -hmm. uh, when we're dealing with someone like Lee Winnell, he is no newbie. Like he's done a lot of things in this industry. So his, his pay bump is going to be a little bit more. And if, you know, Blum hires, you know, new kind filmmakers to make a horror film for like a budget of 5 million, obviously their pay is going to be a little bit less because they're, they're still fresh into the industry. And then as they keep making more, you know, maybe under Blum, their pay will go up and the budget will go up. Like that's how it goes. But like, he's able to get, you know, uh, filmmakers and people in the crew and cast and everything at a reasonable cost. So, as, as a businessman, he gets it at a reasonable cost to where no one's getting screwed over. He, he funds the movie, you know, based on the talent involved. And it's able to go over so well the box office. I'll guarantee you that people's contracts get back in points. So it's not like... Yeah, yeah. I was about to say, much. I mean, there's... there's I know that he's actually mentioned uh, that there is a, you know, in order to kind of um, make up for maybe what they wouldn't have made with such a huge you know, pay payout from making the movie, obviously, you know, they get a lot of money from the back end of, you know, ticket sales and, and whatnot. There, there's, there's a cut for everybody involved. And I think that that's even for behind the scenes, some of the behind the scenes people, the producers and all of that, um, or not producers, but the, like the him, you know, uh, for instance, and, um, and all of that, you know, just, just being able to, to get some of the money off of, you know, the, the fact that people have paid for it, unless of course they're, they have one of these small VOD things, in which case there's a different, there's a different plan involved, but, uh, but yeah, it's, uh, yeah, it's, uh, I mean, we could talk about this movie for hours, yeah. <laughs> but I, uh, I, I think it's safe to say that, uh, uh I'm going to give it an A as well. I, yeah. I agree with Joel, like even the smaller stuff, like with maybe some of the logic with, um, let's just say the science fiction elements. I'm sure if we look deep into it, I'm sure, there's some stuff that might not make a whole mm-hmm. lot of sense, or I'm sure there might be things like, oh, I don't think that would actually happen because that happens really quick or whatever. The only, like, the only time when such things matter is when there's when the movie offers nothing else. And in this case, right. it offers a lot. It offers right. actors who so are all good. great. Yeah, Everything exactly. is so good to where even some of the minor logical stuff, which might bother some people, and I'm not going to argue with that. If it bothers you, you know, it implement you. <laughs> that to your grade. Yeah, it it's obviously bothersome to you to where you can't look past it. But yeah. Joel and I were different to where like some things might we might be able to sweep under the rug or some things but like, oh that's too much. But if the this, movie if the movie earns my ability right to to suspend my disbelief, then then that's great. And in this case, it's one of the best in a while to do that. (laughs) Right. So, And I'm going to do it for just that. I'm going to give it that, A, because everything else is such a high caliber level that Mm -hmm. when when Lee is telling us, like, hey, can you suspend your disbelief for something that's not even there on screen? And I'm going to be able to craft it in a way to manipulate you thinking that, and it works, then I'm going to give him full credit. And that's why I will give it the A. Um, Yeah, I – 
guys, I, I, I said this uh, 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 this morning when I was doing my, my YouTube review version of this, but if you are someone that loves jump scares or you just love thrills and you just like to be entertained, you'll love it. If you like slow burn horror, stuff like The Witch or you know Hereditary, you'll love this. If you uh, are a cinephile like Joel and myself, that love to break it down into components, you know, technically, story-wise, performance, whatever, I think you'll find something to latch onto and, like, dive deeper into. This movie appeals to everybody that's into the horror genre, and so I would highly, highly recommend it. Yeah, absolutely. That That is our shared review of The Invisible Man. It is in theaters now. Definitely go check it out. It is fantastic. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, I'm going to offer a review of The Call of the Wild, the new film starring Harrison Ford. Uh, So I'm basically turning the clock back a week. And Chase is going to offer some thoughts on the trailers of the week, including the Candyman remake and the new thriller Run starring Sarah Paulson. So stay tuned, folks, and we will be right back. You just heard our reviews of The Invisible Man. Definitely go check that out. And now we are going to transition into some of this week's trailers. Uh, and I have seen one of these. I will get to that one at the end when Chase brings it up. But uh, but Chase, go ahead. I think you have four to talk about, correct? Yes, sir. So uh, the first one uh, I'm a little baffled by, and I'll explain why in just a second. Not because of the concept or just what it looks like, just... Baffled at the whole marketing approach. Um, so this first one is called Rumble, and this is actually from uh, Paramount. Uh, I think w- WWE is uh, one of the co-financiers and producers and stuff. So this is very much their story, which makes total sense because this is uh, set in a world where monster wrestling is a global sport and monsters are superstar athletes. And uh, teenage Winnie seeks to follow in her father's footsteps by coaching a lovable underdog monster into a champion. And that lovable underdog monster is voiced by Will Arnett. So, uh, once again, this is from Paramount. They're really uh, into the animation game. And this is also uh, co-produced, co-financed, whatever you want to call it, from WWE. So, they're kind of venturing into this um, arena as well. Uh, You see what I did there? So, uh, (laughs) Um, oh you know, when this trailer uh, dropped, I was a little confused, but it, I guess it makes total sense because, uh, you know, a lot of companies that have animated movies that they want to start pushing onto audiences, they're going to start doing that because Onward comes out next weekend. And so I'm assuming they're going to want to put a lot of those types of trailers in front of that movie. So when I saw it and I, I realized that Onward was coming out soon, OK, that makes total sense. What doesn't make sense to me is the fact that this doesn't even come out until January uh, 2021. Mm. Why on earth would you advertise this 11 <laughs> months out when people are going to forget about it next week? So I get if it's like a like a big Pixar film or like a big tentpole film, like you know, like Spider Verse two, for instance. Like I would, if you want to advertise like a teaser uh, a year out, that's probably fine. But most of the time, studios try to go within that like six six month window, and so. For this type of movie, I don't understand why you would advertise so early. So that's why I'm confused by it. Um, but I guess if you want to put it in front of Onward and the giant crowd, it's going to you know conjure up uh, next weekend. Then I guess that makes sense. But once again, people will forget about this. Um, as far as the actual movie and how it looks and everything, 
it looks fine. It looks like it could be a lot of fun. Kind of reminds me of um, the design of the monsters of like monsters and aliens from DreamWorks. Mm-hmm. Uh, it has that gummy look to it. It doesn't really look like super textured or anything like on the Pixar level or whatnot. But that's not really the point with um, Paramount animation movies. Like they're they just do it for you know the entertainment value and making sure it can get families to bring you know, kids and just be a, uh, they're the, they're the ones behind SpongeBob too, right? Right. Exactly. So, yeah, uh, it looks more, it looks more in the vein of this upcoming kind of SpongeBob movie. Exactly. (laughs) I would would imagine. Yeah. And and that's the thing I can't really fault Paramount on. Like that's Mm -hmm. always been their MO is the way these movies look. They didn't, they've never ventured off into like anything uh, extraordinary. I mean, for instance, last year they had that, you know, flop wonder park. So it's not like mm, yeah. they're, they're not in the high art business and I don't, it's not really their thing. I don't really expect them to be, but um, as far as the movie looks, it like, it looks like, you know, something kids would enjoy. It looks like something families could enjoy. Um, and Hey, listen, you know, after fighting with my family and all their terrible straight to DVD, like horror sequels and all that stuff, <laughs> WWE has gained a lot of traction into the, kind of film world, you know, beyond their, um, the wrestling and everything. So, Hey, if they want to venture off into this, I have no issue with that, but I do have an issue with it being advertised 11 months out <laughs> when people are going to forget about it. Uh, yeah. kids do not have that high of attention spans. I don't know if you know this, but they will forget about it. But, um, <laughs> yes. And so that, that is it for the first trailer. The it second... would have made, it would have made more sense for them to wait until soul came out. If they're going to pick right. a Pixar movie to, yeah. to advertise this in front of, well, that would have been perfect. Then again, uh, from the way Onward looks, it kind of looks like the same visual aesthetic as this. So I guess, uh, yeah, but yeah, they should have waited a little further. But um, the second trailer uh, that came out kind of came out of nowhere. I had no idea it was even a thing. It's called The High Note. And this one stars uh, uh, Tracy Ellis Ross, uh, Dakota Johnson, Ice Cube, uh, Bill Pullman. Uh, this one is about a superstar singer played by uh, Ross and her overworked personal assistant played by Johnson. And they are presented with a choice that could alter the course of their respective careers. So, you know, they're kind of in the music industry, you know, finding different ways to reach the top of the mountain and be a very relevant singer. And, you know, they're bringing this up in the trailer, but, you know, Tracy Ellis Ross is a black woman. And so that is very hard for someone of that color and that gender to reach the top of the charts like that. And it's only ever been done um, very few times in the music world and throughout history. So, you know, that is one of the aspects of the story as well. It looks like it could be a a nice little watch, you know, nothing really too fancy, but a nice little breezy watch. You can just kind of watch and be done with and move on without your day. You know, it's kind of like what I thought of like the photograph or something where it's like, Hey, you want to watch something Valentine's Day weekend? Go watch a love story, then you know move on. It's not really anything you're going to think about, but it looks like it could be um, one that could be pleasant, a, a nice little pleasant watch. But I like the cast involved. It, it looks like it uh, could do well with um, you know people that like stories about music or musicians or whatever. So yeah, cool. I mean, I really have nothing more to nothing more to add. Um, but I do like that Dakota Johnson is kind of taking these. Uh, nice supporting roles. You know, she had a really great one with like the peanut butter Falcon last year. So uh, I like the, these type of choices she's making. And of course, Tracy Ellis Ross, I don't watch uh, um, blackish, but I know that I, I've seen like clips of her and stuff. And like, she seems, 
she seems really funny. Um, and seeing her in more of a dramedy type role will be will be nice. Almost like the Issa Rae effect in the photograph. Speaking of the photograph, where she's primarily in comedies, taking more of a dramatic route. So yeah, I'll be curious to see how this one does. But um, the high note uh, coming out May eighth. All right, the first uh, of the horror trailers to come out this weekend because why not? The Invisible Man came out, so you got to advertise your horror films. Am I correct? So uh, the first one comes from Lionsgate. This one also comes out May eighth. Uh, funny enough, this one's called Run. This one is about a homeschooled teenager that begins to suspect that her mother is hiding a dark secret from her. The mother in question is played by Sarah Paulson, and the teenager is played by Kira Allen. And she in the trailer is in a wheelchair, and I believe she is actually wheelchair bound in real life. So that's really cool um, to give her an opportunity to act in a pretty prominent role like this because uh, it, it looks like this whole trailer is going to be nothing but the mother and the daughter and how their relationship is and just uncovering this weird, dark thing that she's hiding and, you know, trying to um, run away from her mom as far as she can, but kind of hard uh, when you're in a wheelchair. So I guess that's the the whole point is a little bit more difficult for her um, than someone that, you know, could easily just kind of run out like that. But that's what makes it terrifying is that she is kind of handicapped in that regard and she doesn't have that many options or any, you know, many places to move. So she has to be very strategic on how she's uh, able to escape her mom and how she can, uh, you know, be mobile. And so um, that is where some of the anticipation and the kind of suspense comes from is the fact that she is in a wheelchair uh, and she can't escape that easy. Uh, It's a really great trailer. Uh, I really like Sarah Paulson kind of being just this paranoid mother that, we have no idea what's going on with her, but you know, I like the fact that this trailer doesn't reveal anything. This is like the year of horror trailers, uh, not really giving away much. We have, you know, stuff like the Invisible Man. We have this one. We have Antebellum. We have Antlers. We have Candyman that we're about to talk about. Um, this is just the year for for horror trailers that just are really just um, giving us a little bit, a little taste, and not really giving us. Much else, and I, I really appreciate that. So, yeah, run. Uh, this is also from uh, searching director Anash Chaganti, which yes. is pretty awesome, too. Uh, I'm looking forward to great. a new. Yeah, I, I love that movie, and I've been looking forward to uh, to a new movie from him for, for a while. And I'm really happy that, that he. Because uh, I know that this, one's, this one was moved multiple times, because I think yes. it was supposed to come out last year, then it was moved. Um, to last month, actually, it was supposed to come out on the twenty fourth, opposite opposite the gentleman, and then it was moved again, uh, and now it's definitely officially coming out May eighth because you know well, <laughs> now we have uh, a trailer I, for it. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I'm glad they made the move for two reasons. One, it's great counter programming for something like the High Note, and two, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, uh, releasing it in May like this, I guess Lionsgate is feeling more confident about it. Going, hey, this could actually really do really well at the box office let's push it in more of a summer capacity and yeah this is right around the same time black widow comes out so like the fact that they're yeah. even doing that is even more impressive yeah um, yeah uh and plus if it was released on january 24th i forgot about another release that day it would have been cannibalized by the turning uh, uh right, right. which was you know another horror movie uh, i don't know which one people would have gone to you know in a situation <laughs> like that you never know right. but uh because we have another situation now um so that would be a theoretical <laughs> situation, but 
but yeah, no, I'm I'm glad that they moved it. I'm glad because I think that this more fits like Candyman. We're about to talk about this more fits the summer horror uh, thing that has been happening for a few years now, where we get this high concept you know horror movie in the summer, and it does really well. And I have a feeling you know even if it is in in the conversation of you know what comes after Black Widow, <laughs> I, I think that this could do really well. Uh, it sounds yeah, like it, I haven't seen the trailer, but it does sound like it's one of those things that people are excited about. And yeah, I think, and that, I think uh, Lionsgate has a really great opportunity here to dominate not only with this movie, but Spiral, which is also coming yes, out. Yes, that's same right. Month. Two so, weeks later. Yeah. Yeah. The, so Lionsgate could totally change the conversation in terms of horror in the same month. So, mm-hmm. yeah, that's that's really exciting. Um and so two, that two, two promising titles right in a row. Uh, very, exactly. Very, very and yeah. like, I, like I say, I don't know what's up with 2020 Joel, but like, this is the year of horror films because we about to talk about another one. That's mm. not only coming out later in the summer. So it's even more confident, but it is a, you know, spiritual sequel. It's a, a remake, whatever you want to call it of Candyman. Uh, and this one comes from Nia DaCosta uh, written, produced by Jordan Peele or co-written by you know, Peele. He's got other writers involved, but um, this one, uh, as, as IMDb puts it, is a spiritual sequel to 1992's horror film Candyman. And uh, Candyman returns to the now gentrified Chicago neighborhood where the legend began. So it is a kind of retelling and reimagining, but also kind of following the same footsteps from the first one. Just kind of springboard offing that instead of uh, going off of the sequels. And we'll just completely disregard those because that is the trend we see nowadays they just go yes. <laughs> hey what what happened after the first one nothing happened nothing after happened the first one, and we're gonna rewrite <laughs> exactly. history so but in terms of the way this one looks love it love the visuals love the unsettling vibe with the the hook the bee everything we know about um the candy man you know say his name five times in the mirror and the legend is summoned it's just the classic you know uh slasher film um with this type of slasher, I'm glad that Tony Todd is coming back um, to be in this one. Uh, I, I like the cast, you know, Yahya Abdul-Mateen II is really impressing me, especially with uh, his turn in the Watchmen series. He's really fantastic on that show. Uh, and everyone else I, I'm not really too familiar with, but they, um, I know one of them is actually from the original uh, Candyman, uh, Joel, how do you pronounce her name? Tenoya Paris? Tiona Paris, is she, she was in the original. I think so, right? Or was oh, it? Well, was it... I don't know. I, I don't know about that. I, I I haven't seen the original. Oh no, excuse me. It was Vanessa Williams. Vanessa Williams. That's right. Yeah. Right. Yeah, right. Yeah. Uh, I knew that she was back. I had forgotten that she was in the original. Um, right. But yeah, yeah I, uh, I, Tiona I... Paris. Tiona Paris is from uh, Dear White People, uh, and she also is going to be uh, in the WandaVision series. I think it is. I think it's the WandaVision series. As the adult version of um, the the girl that that uh, Captain Marvel's friend's gr- uh, daughter, uh, okay. um, uh, Monica Rambo, I think is her name, and she's going to be in that. Uh, yeah, she's been doing really uh, really solid work for yeah. a long time now. Yeah, so. my, uh, my my apologies, I, I had the two mixed up. I, I was <laughs> like reading. I was like, oh, uh, this person's coming back. That's really cool because I remember seeing. Uh, the original Candyman way back when uh, my friend and I in middle school, we would watch all the slasher films. So like Freddie, Jason, Michael, uh, Candyman, uh, Pumpkinhead, uh, whatever, uh, Leprechaun, Chuck, Hellraiser, Hellraiser, <laughs> exactly. Whatever yeah. you can conjure up in the eighties, we watched in the, 
late nineties, early two thousands. That's just what we did. And it was uh, quite a time. Cause I was always struck by the kind of visual uh, nature of these films and how they were taken so seriously as like urban legend films. And like, they were just terrifying uh, from the way the, the villain was, you know, dressed the prop that it held in its hand, just everything about all these characters. I remember, but Candyman in particular, because of, the legend of saying his name five times in the mirror and they summon the hook for the hand, uh, the bees, just everything about it, unsettling uh, creepiness uh, from this character. But this reimagining definitely looks uh, like it's going to hold up to the uh, original, maybe even be a bit better. Uh, I can't wait for it. Uh, the director is very active on Twitter and she was saying that they're um, in the middle of post-production right now. So they're just about to finish that up here in a couple months. So, yeah, I, I can't wait. And the fact that this is from Universal and they're going to strike gold with the Invisible Man. Uh, Universal, I know we've been crapping on you recently <laughs> with, like, Doolittle and um, what was the cats. other – And Cats. I think yeah. we're going to recoup, recoup – uh, not all of it, but recoup definitely some stuff from, like, Candyman, Invisible Man, and, like, the Fast 9 film. So you'll be fine. But, um, yeah, I'm glad that they're releasing this in – the middle of the summer uh, to just capitalize on, you know, it being a horror film and it's going to go against like big blockbuster films. So yeah, I, I can't wait. Um, June, June 12th, I believe. Yeah. June 12th. Um, yeah. It looks terrifying. This is the trailer that I've seen. Um, I, I usually wait until I see stuff in theaters because I don't seek it out, but there was just such a rush to like, say oh my gosh this looks great i was at work it was a slow period i was just like you know what i'm just gonna watch this trailer right now so right in the middle of work at the register i was just leaning on the thing and and i watched it on my phone yeah it looks it looks terrifying the uh the cinematography looks gorgeous um you know once again a horror film with great cinematography probably going to be ignored at the oscars for that uh and uh yeah it just looks terrifying it also looks extremely violent uh in ways that maybe we're not <laughs> prepared for it, uh, it, it might be the most violent thing that peel has put his name on so far mm-hmm. yeah and it's yeah yeah for sure um yeah there wasn't much violence in get out or us uh i mean it was pretty bloody when it when it came but it wasn't as like seemingly pervasive as this because there's i mean there's a there's a lot of blood already it's a red band trailer uh, should tell people that, so <laughs> you know, keep that in mind. But uh, but it looks just terrifying, and I and I can't wait. I'm I'm really digging the atmosphere. I'm digging the sociological element that it's clearly going to tap into. Um, it, it just yeah, it looks it looks fantastic. So can't wait, can't wait. All right, well that is this week's trailers, and now we're going to transition into my review of the Call of the Wild. I'm turning the clock back a week to talk about this. Uh, Big screen adventure starring Harrison Ford as uh, John. I was John. I think his name is Thompson. Anyway, um, Joel. Ford his name play- is his name. His name is Harrison. <laughs> That's true. Harrison Ford plays himself in this yeah. big screen Come adventure on, about a, a man <laughs> living uh, in the Yukon territory, uh, just as the gold rush is kind of a thing has, has become a massive. Um, a massive obsession for a lot of people. And it brings together two, two characters. Uh, one is Ford's John, 
who is kind of living on his own after the death of his son and an estrangement from his wife, and a dog named Buck brought to life through both visual effects and a live-action reference performance, as they call it in the, in the uh, credits, by Terry Notary, uh, who has kind of made his name by being um, one of the, uh, the people playing uh, a couple, I think, of the apes in the new Planet of the Apes franchise. Uh, from Fox. So the story here is basically, basically follows Buck. It's, it's essentially another one of those movies that begins with a dog's, like a dog's journey, a dog's way home, a dog's purpose. That's pretty much what it is. Um, maybe it should have been called a dog's call of the wild. I don't know, but basically the movie follows Buck as he kind of is put into different forms of ownership. He initially begins as just kind of the lazy dog about the house about a, a giant mansion of a, of a very wealthy judge played by Bradley Whitford. Um, but he's too big for the house and is constantly put outside and he wanders away and is kidnapped um, and then sold into uh, uh, sold to a mail service delivery uh, company, um, including a couple of um, uh, delivery men played by Adewale, Akinoye Agbaje and Karagi uh, first, and then is, uh, kind of sold because that company goes under. He sold to a very evil prospector played by Dan Stevens and his sister played by Karen Gillan. Um, and then finally comes across the path of John. And uh, it's basically just like a, something of a survival kind of road movie um, where Buck just has to find his place. And that's, that's pretty much it. That's the, that's the movie. It's an adventure uh, there's a lot of scenes of Buck barely escaping things, uh, such as a such as a um, you know a waterfall and uh, stuff like that. It's a very simple movie, guys, and in fact, that's the problem. It's not very memorable. I saw this a week ago. I'm kind of struggling for some of the details of this plot, but really, it's not even a plot worth struggling over. Um, this is this is one of those movies that you know will work for a certain a certain type of audience. And certainly some of these movies type, these types of movies work for me. I, I do like iron will. I like white Fang. Um, I liked Togo, which is the uh, Disney plus movie recently with Willem Dafoe. Um, these movies capture something elemental for audiences who are willing to go along on the journey with an animal. Uh, dogs are empathetic creatures. So of course we, we empathize with them. Um, some, you know, uh, consider them maybe more empathetic than some of the other animals like cats that, that are, that are domesticated. And so there's, there's a, a degree of um, kind of a universal thing with people who love dogs, who go to these movies uh, to see them, you know, kind of embroiled in an adventure as the protagonist in a movie. And that's very much the case here. Ford is, is in the movie, uh, he certainly has about maybe half an hour of screen time, but his section of the movie is primarily left to the climax when the prospector uh, comes to call and comes to claim what is rightfully his, and that's not just the gold that is this dog that he wanted to be the leading the leading guide dog of his pack. Um, even though he was going to work all of them to death, he... Uh, he wants that to happen so that he can find gold. And he's basically just a sniveling, uh, 
you know, villain with complete with the mustache, although it's not long enough for him to twirl. It certainly seems like he could if it was. Um, and, you know, Stevens is very cartoonish here uh, as that villain. Um, but this is not really a movie about the human actors. This is a movie about the visual effects used to bring these dogs to life. And it's kind of rickety, honestly. There's there's a lot here that is um, kind of the uncanny valley of a dog being a little bit too realistic without actually being realistic. That's what the uncanny valley is. There's something slightly off, hence uncanny. Uh, and yet there's also a cartoonish element so that it isn't uh, very believably interacting with the human characters on screen. It's hard to uh, accept certain shots of, you know, from the side, for instance, of, of John hugging Buck. Um, but then again, eh, maybe that's not a huge problem. And it's certainly not the major problem in the movie. It's just a distraction from everything else that's trying to go on uh, in this plot, which is again very simple. It's a it's a it's a um, it's an adventure tale about a dog trying to get from one place to another place. Uh, in this case, more of a figurative place of belonging, and he doesn't know where he belongs. He doesn't know how he fits in, considering he's so big. But he is seemingly guided by a wolf. Um, a, a sort of a, a, a wolf guide that isn't really there, but is brought to life by probably the most convincing effects on screen. Uh, you get the feeling that this wolf is not played by an actor uh, giving a reference, whereas a lot of these other dogs are. And I think that that is probably the strongest part of this movie is Buck's in- encounters with this wolf. It's very symbolic, of course, because what isn't in these types of movies it's elemental so a lot is going to be symbolic but it's also very it's also very effective and it represents the movies the movie at its best the movie at what it could be if it wasn't distracted by all of these other human characters that are you know intruding on the uh, the dog's time you you think about you know um homeward bound for instance a, a movie like that where the human characters were um, at a minimum in that film and it basically amount no those animals talked but still it was effective for what it was because it primarily stayed with the animals and this movie really just kind of distracts itself constantly with these human characters who just don't even really matter to the movie um there's a sense here from it comes from director chris sanders who um is basically taking his history with animation. He's directed. He's been the director of movies like How to Train Your Dragon, The Croods, Lilo and Stitch. Clearly has an eye for animated adventures, so he's kind of taking that, applying it to a live-action format, and still not giving up his cartoonish sense of wonder. And for for whatever reason, the more grounded elements of this movie suffer because of that, because of the fact that there's too many instances of big effect sequences or characters or shots that overwhelm the simplicity of what else of, of, of everything else that the movie's trying to do. And it's unfortunate because it could have worked. Um, the, you know, like I said, these movies have worked in the past. Togo was pretty heavy on visual effects. It wasn't for the animals, 
but it was for the surroundings. It was for the night sky. It was for um, a lot of these, a lot of, you know, similar sequences of, of daring escape from, from natural disasters or just natural wonders. And this movie, it just feels synthetic. It does. It feels like it was shot on a back lot. It doesn't feel like they're actually shooting in any particular location, except for in very, very few establishing shots that clearly they paid some money for. So they went out to somewhere and then shot it and then used that as a reference for their visual effects templates. Um, just feels synthetic. Doesn't feel, uh, for instance, in this in these action sequences featuring Buck, it doesn't feel like there's any danger, unfortunately, and uh, that's because you are constantly aware that what you are watching is fake. You are aware that it is a visual effect, and it's just so overwhelming. So yeah, there's not much to say. This is this is going to be a very short second half of the show <laughs> because of that, um, but it's just very predictable plays out exactly as you anticipate it does um you know it gives a certain human character the only end uh that makes sense for him and uh it redefines his relationship with the dog in the wake of that but then it ends and it and so basically at its most interesting is when it's about to meet its end credits and that's just kind of indicative of everything else going on here. It's constantly distracting from the main point and then it's just calling it a day. And so for me, it's really underwhelming. Uh, you know, I was looking forward to this for the same reason that, that I liked Togo, that I liked films like Iron Will and, and White Fang, these elemental s- stories of, of animals in peril. It just triggers something empathetic and sympathetic within us as an audience. And although this isn't a, you know, major failure, um, the movie doesn't really follow through on that promise. Um, I don't think that the technology is there yet. And this is actually something that our friend Mark said, the technology isn't there yet for something like this to be so convincing yet. And so clearly they couldn't use a real dog. There's too many, there's too many instances of the dog in genuine physical danger sometimes literal violence to the dog. So of course they had to separate uh, that from the audience because clearly we're not going to want to see that. Uh, it also would cause major legal problems. Um, so it makes sense that they would, that they would take this approach, but unfortunately in practice it doesn't really work. And that's why I am giving the call of the wild a C uh, check it out. If you want to, if this is your bag, if you, if you feel like you're going to like it, certainly you could do worse. Um, I would say just maybe wait for a 4k rental. Uh, it's not really worth the theater trip, uh, unfortunately. So the call of the wild gets a C from me. Chase, you didn't see this one. Are you, are you turned on by the, the prospect of seeing this? Are you, are you going to skip this one? I mean, you and I, we grew up in the glorious age of, you know, the nineties and the early two thousands where we got a lot of like you know, dog this kind of movie. Movies. Yeah. 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 We got a lot of these type of movies. So there's a part of me that wants to watch stuff like this and hopefully, you know, introduce my future kids to movies like this. Um, and I like Harrison Ford and I, but it's, it's like, I, it's like I said, when I reviewed the trailer for you guys, it's just that the animated dog throws me off mm-hmm. and I don't yeah. understand why I, I understand it's hard to train dogs on set. I'm not saying it's easy, but 
if you're going to go the, the CGI route, it needs to look crystal clear or it needs to blend in with the practical environment a little bit more because those trailers just turn me off. But I've heard mixed things from this. Uh, I also need to watch Togo because I heard that was pretty oh, good. Oh, yeah, very uh, good, yeah. So I need to watch both. But in terms of what you're saying, I could probably just wait until – it'll eventually hit Disney plus and uh, I'm, I'm cool with that. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I should say too, like um, the thing is like, it, it does take a certain level of ambition to, to try to execute this idea of a CGI dog in peril. But I would say that it takes more ambition to, to try to film a movie, keeping animals, real animals safe while also doing an animals in peril movie that, that that's, there's more ambition with that. And I think do it, you do you think because this is a uh, this probably had something to do with it, but do you think the leaking of that video on that one dog movie will give any other studio pause oh, to do that again? Right. Yeah, I have to wonder if there was a conversation about you know where somebody brought that up and 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 uh, I forget what the movie it was, but. Um, is it a dog's a dog's purpose or a dog's way home? I forgot which one. Or was I think that it might have been. Movie? I think it might have been. Um, I don't think it was one of those movies. Actually, uh, it might have been a dog's purpose, but I don't think so. I think it was some other thing. Uh, but yeah, I, I can't remember. I, I do have to wonder if there was a conversation about that because, you know, obviously they were wanting to do something. There is a, a bit more. Uh, in terms of gymnastics that a dog would have to do in this movie, just because of the nature of the story. There's, like I said, there's, there's, you know, the dog is hit multiple times. You can't really do that. Um, right. Cause from what I was reading about Togo is that they use real dogs throughout the entire set, except for like when they were in the perilous situation. Right. Yeah. And, and so CGI. Yeah, there was, and it was, it was constantly from afar. Uh, it right. wasn't, it wasn't close up shots where they were obvious And this, in this case, yeah, it's just too. They, it's you, just too much of that. Do you think they should have gone that route with this one? Maybe. Uh, there's there's a lot. Like I said, there's a lot that the movie calls upon Buck to do, and in, and that includes actual emotion. So of course they had to, you know, by their logic, they had to get an actor to give a reference. And in this case, Terry Notary and several others, I think, for some of the other dogs, where you're, it's not a dog emoting. It's it's an anthropomorphic being emoting like a human does, and so. You know, maybe the whole thing is scrapped because of that, but I, I but it just is so weird, and um, yeah, so it's it's strange, it's very strange and uh, and unwieldy. So unfortunate that it doesn't really work. Uh, certainly, you know, you could probably wait for like like Chase is saying, you know, Disney Plus or Hulu or wherever they plan to put this. Probably Disney Plus, perfect family movie um, to put on there. But uh, but yeah, if you're wanting to introduce kids, by the way. To something maybe don't go to this one first this could be like you know your fifth or sixth choice or something in a in a, in a um uh in a marathon or or whatever go go to some of the classics you know even benji or something would be better and uh yeah so all right well that's my review of the call of the wild it is also in theaters now uh check it out if you want to i'm obviously mixed on it um but let us know what you thought uh, that is the end of this episode. Chase, where can people find you? Yeah, if you guys want to follow me on Twitter, it's at Real Chase Lee. If you guys want to follow the podcast on Twitter, it's at Real Me and Podcast. And then, of course, for this podcast itself, uh, if you're listening on Apple, Spotify, Anchor, 
uh, wherever else this thing is at. I don't even know anymore. It's on a <laughs> bunch of different places. But wherever you are listening, please subscribe to the feed. Become a regular member and you know be aware of everything that we drop, including many reviews, uh, extra episodes, full episodes, whatever. We got you covered. Just subscribe to that feed and spread it around. And let people know what's up. Uh, but, yeah, that is where you can find me on everywhere else. And if I didn't mention anything, everything will be in the description below. All right. And if you want to find me, my writing is primarily at joelonfilm.com. Uh, this weekend, I have I still have some uh, two reviews to fill in on my front page, uh, including The Invisible Man. That one's in works. And Disappearance at Clifton Hill. That one I haven't started yet. I'm kind of slow this weekend, guys. Anyway, otherwise, you can also see reviews of Guns Akimbo, The Lodge, and at Spectrum Culture Now and featured on my front page. Once We're Brothers, Robbie Robertson and the band reviewed that. Um, and then if you want to follow my my incessant ramblings on Twitter, you can do that at Real Joel Copeland. Uh, that's R-E-E-L-J-O-E-L-C-O-P-L-I-N-G. I found a good way to make that into kind of a song. Anyway, <laughs> uh, lots of things rhyme uh, in that combination of letters. And uh, you can follow my daily progress, watching movies at Letterboxd, if you just search my name. It's a great website, really good social interaction on that, so, uh, so do that. And that is it. Next week, we will have reviews of Onward, the new Pixar movie, and I will have an extra review of The Way Back, the new sports movie from the director of Miracle. And by the way, I totally forgot to mention this. I watched Miracle for the first time this week. Uh, this is the 2004 sports movie with Kurt Russell uh, based on the Miracle uh, on Ice. Um, and uh, or I can't remember if that's what it's called. Anyway, uh, <laughs> I think it is the Miracle on Ice. Uh, but the 19, I think it's the 1980 um, Olympics, um, which is a great, great movie. I can't believe I missed it. I, I do like early 2000 sports movies and this one passed by me until uh, until this week and uh, I'm glad that I caught up with it just before the way back comes out because uh, Gavin O'Connor is good when it comes to sports this and warrior um, so yeah I'm uh, I'm excited for the way back I'm excited for onward should be a good good episode next week this has been episode 316 uh, and next week 317 that's a big number and uh, we will Talk to you guys later. Chase, take us out. All right, guys, you heard Joel. So next week is uh, Onward for episode 317. But that is it for this episode of the Real Me and Cole, the movie podcast. You guys are awesome. Please keep staying awesome. You're way better than us. Uh, that's for sure. <laughs> Joel and I are peasants compared to you guys. But, no, you guys are uh, awesome over there. That is Joel. I am Chase. We'll see you guys next week. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.